Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are coming this morning to the final chapter of our study in 1 Timothy. We've been working our way through this, this good epistle and asking the Lord to teach us more about what it means to be faithful members of the body of Christ, that we would be His house, that we would be His living temple, that we would be the pillars and buttresses of the truth. That's what He's called us to. And certainly when we, when we recognize what those things mean, we, we understand how short we fall. And yet we rest in the finished work of Christ and the power of the ascended Christ to strengthen us and fill us with His Spirit and change us, and make us more and more like Christ. Keith and Linda are here. I didn't know you guys were coming today. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome home. Good to see you. Well, would you stand with me one more time, please? And uh, let's read this text together. This is our text for this morning, First Timothy 6, 1 and 2. And this text gives us a Christian work ethic. Let's read this together in unison, and then we will pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our study this morning. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is trustworthy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, immediately applicable to everyday life. We want to come to Your Word this morning as Your children, submissive, humble, ready to be taught. Father, we are, as Your children, filled with Your Spirit, we are impassioned by the call of this letter that we would know how to behave as the church of the living God. As Your family, Your name, is over our lives, Father, simply because You have saved us. You have paid for us and bought us with a price. We are ultimately Your slaves. We, are, we belong to You. And we pray that You would help us to see what we need to see in this text today to be workers who go into the world and do our job knowing that whatever work you have planned for us to do, that it is holy, and that it is as unto you, and that it makes a reflection upon your name and the Gospel. Father, sanctify us in our work. Sanctify us in our thinking about how we work and why we work. And I pray that it would all be to Your glory, that You would give us as Your church greater opportunities to 
bring glory to you, serve others, and speak the gospel because of how we work. Fill our work, Father, with the power of your Spirit. And teach us about this today, we pray in the name of Jesus. And for his glory, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Now, as we come to this text, as I said, the, the, the title that I've given to this particular text is A Christian Work Ethic. And before we come to this text and begin to work through the words together, I think there are three concepts that I want to talk about with you initially that are important to orient us to this text and to introduce us and so that we can receive it well. The first, the first thing that I want you to think about as we're coming to this text is our condition as sinful human beings. Our need. Why do we need this text about a Christian work ethic? I don't know what you can think about in your mind. When was the last time you heard a message from God's Word about a Christian work ethic? Maybe in a while, I don't know. It's been a while for me. And yet it is a very important thing. Because we all know, if we're true believers, we understand that we have been born of this world with a sinful nature that is naturally selfish. And we have even successfully corrupted the gift that God has given to us in work. And it seems that as each generation of society kind of comes and goes, that our responses to work become more and more corrupt even. As human beings, we naturally think selfishly, meaning work is all about us. It's all about our wage. It's about our comfort. It's about how we can have power to purchase material things. In fact, very often in our work, we become lazy. As much as we can get for as little effort as possible. That's kind of the theme of looking for a job nowadays, isn't it? Let me see what job will give me as much as I can possibly get for as little output as possible. And even as we go to work, sometimes as a society, we think ourselves entitled. There's a strong sense of entitlement, isn't there? We think we deserve so much, and yet, when we don't get it, we consider ourselves grieved victims. And with all of that, we become very discontent. In fact, statistics show that most people don't even like their jobs. And with that, with a bunch of employees that don't like their jobs, that means that the employers don't like their jobs either. And work becomes a general drudgery. And as a result of that, work becomes more and more unproductive. Operating this way, our work is of poor quality and done inefficiently. And so sadly, the people of Christ's church often stoop to such working attitudes and actions as well and inevitably then bring shame to the name of Christ and the Gospel. And this text powerfully addresses this sort of corruption of work, a good gift from God, it addresses it and helps us to think differently. It re helps us to come back and think how, what, what God's intentions and purposes and blessings through, gift, uh, through work actually are. And of course, as we've been alluding already, this 
to, to work according to God's will and for His glory is so important to the message of this letter. Remember, turn back for a moment to 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14 through 16. This is, the, this is the key of this letter. This is the point of this letter. You'll remember as I read. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says to Timothy. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Think about that. That's our identity as people saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings us into His church. He calls us His family or His household. We're the church of the living God. We're the people who, through the Spirit, are indwelt by the living God. We are called to be the pillar and buttress of the truth, meaning we hold the truth and strive to keep it pure. And then we proclaim it to others, just like us who need to know the message of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Make the connection that people who are the pillar and buttress, people who are indwelled by the living God, people who are the family of God, how ought their work ethic to be? That makes a huge difference, doesn't it? And that's what Paul is calling us to. The second important concept that we need to consider to properly orient us to this text is not only our need for this text, but also there's something that I'm calling our confusion. And, and, and what I mean by that is the cultural misunderstanding that we have about slavery. You'll notice in this text that Paul uses several words describing slavery. He says bondservants. That's the classic New Testament word doulos. That's the bond slave, literally, the slave. Second, masters. And he even describes that relationship as a yoke. You see it in verse 2, masters. And he's continuing to speak to the slave. Paul is talking to the Christian slave in this text. Now, if you think about that for just a moment, a lot of people just hearing that right on the surface of the text would be like, what is Paul talking about? Why wouldn't he tell this slave to forget about serving a master, get out from underneath that yoke? Let's Paul talk about abolition. Paul, talk about freedom from slavery. You need... You need to get through this, Paul. Let's, let's, let's make a political event here. And that would be confusing. You would think that's where Paul's going. In fact, there's so much in the Bible that talks about the relationship between slaves and masters. Now, when, when people come to this text, they would immediately be put off and really disgusted by reading those words that we pointed out. And there's a reason for that. The reason is, is that we have a, a negative attitude toward the biblical usage of the slave-master social economic system because we're confusing American history with what's in the Bible. That is a very important issue we need to understand. We're confusing the American abuses of the slave-master system with the biblical concept of the slave-master system. If a person comes to the Scriptures with the American abuses of the slave-master system in mind, thinking that Paul has that same concept in mind, they will be very disgusted indeed. And rightly so. 
I mean, when you think about what did occur in some cases, many cases in the American slave master system, you think of ethnic condemnation. That's sinful. You think of segregation. That's sinful. You think of ownership of another person as a possession or even similar to cattle. Again, that's sinful. You think of all manner of abuse and ill treatment. And all of that is disgusting. All of that is degrading and sinful and must be condemned as sin. But that's not the same thing that Paul's talking about or Peter talked about or Jesus talked about or that we see in the Old Testament and New Testament by example. That's not the same thing as the social economic relationship that is often referred to in the Scriptures. And certainly there were abuses of that system as well, just like there are abuses of any social political system. For example, husbands and wives, parents and children, employee-employer. But just because a system exists, and just because there's abuses of that system, doesn't make the system inherently evil. Consider some of the biblical content on the slave-master relationship. This is important because we need to come to this text with the right mindset without preconceived resistance to it. Again, the words that Paul uses here that are used often throughout the Scriptures, doulos is the word for slave, and sometimes despotes or kurios is the word for master. Now, think of it this way. Jesus often used the slave-master system in His teaching without saying that the system was inherently evil. Have you noticed that? You read through the Gospels and He uses it illustratively and in many different ways. Jesus certainly described the sinful behaviors of both masters and slaves and condemned the abuses of the system, but nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament do you find Jesus inherently condemning the slave-master system that He was alluding to in His teachings. In fact, Jesus commands the humble serving attitude of a slave, doesn't He? He uses it as a model for Christian humility. Mark chapter 10, verse 44. Jesus describes the relationship between God and the members of God's kingdom by that slave-master relationship. Matthew 25, 14-30. Jesus Himself took the actions and attitudes of the lowest slave and commanded His followers to do the same. John 13. And you consider the Apostle Paul. Paul calls believers slaves to righteousness, doesn't he? Slaves to God. Romans chapter 6. Paul probably... Paul even proudly calls himself a slave of Christ, doesn't he? And a slave of the church. 2 Corinthians 4.4. And of course, Paul welcomes all people to equally share in Christ and the blessings of the Holy Spirit and the blessings of the church. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12.13, where Jeremy read earlier today. Galatians 3.28, Colossians 3 and verse 11. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7.17-24, Paul clearly does not view remaining in slavery a sinful lifestyle. He says to people, if you were a slave when you became a Christian... That's okay. You can stay a slave. That doesn't doesn't bind God's ability to use you for His glory and His kingdom. If you're a free person, stay a free person. If you're a slave and you have an opportunity to be free, 
Sure, go for it. But God doesn't need you to be a free person or a slave person in order to use you for His glory. It's irrelevant. Very interesting how the apostles talk about this. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Colossians 3, 22 through Colossians 4, 1. 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. Titus 2, 9 through 10. Paul gives instructions to slaves and masters on how to live honorably together in that social economic relationship. He doesn't tell them that they are living in a sinful relationship. Think of that. He instructs Christian masters on how to be godly Christian masters. That ought to disturb you in a way if you're thinking about it in an American context. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Well, then what is he talking about, right? Paul doesn't call for abolition. Paul doesn't call for political revolt, revolt, but gives instruction on how to live honorably in that relationship. Consider Philemon. You know that little book, Philemon? Paul was writing to a Christian master about his slave who ran away. And Paul says to Philemon, he says, receive him. Receive him back. Receive him more than a slave. Receive him as a brother in Christ. And Paul even says to him that he would have loved to have kept Onesimus to serve him. But he's, you know, Paul, knowing the Roman law, certainly returned Onesimus back to Philemon because he was still in relationship to Philemon. 1 Peter chapter 2, 13-21, Paul gives the same kind of advice, or Peter gives the same kind of advice Paul does. Directing godly behavior in the slave-master relationship. So again, we come, I've just given you kind of a smattering of what's in the New Testament about this relationship, and it, kind of, it ought to stir up questions then in your heart. and be like, okay, well then, how could Jesus and Paul and Peter speak in this way about the slave-master system and relationship that they were familiar with if it was inherently evil. Nowhere in Scripture do we see the prophets, apostles, or Jesus Himself calling for political activism, revolt, or abolition of the slave-master system. Only condemning its abuses and commanding, the godly, commanding godly living within the system. So what that must mean is that the system in which the biblical writers were familiar wasn't inherently evil. That must mean that it's very different than what we refer to and think about, especially as we watch movies on TV or whatever. It must be very different than what we refer to in American history. What was the slave-master relationship of the Scriptures then? Well, let me give you a few facts and observations about the slave-master relationship that is positively referred to in the Old and New Testament. What the writers of Scripture were referring to was Listen to this. A contracted agreement for service between two people. That's what the relationship was. A contracted agreement for service between two people. The slave or the doulos was the title given to the person who rendered the kind of service agreed upon for the period of time agreed upon for the amount of compensation agreed upon. The master, the, the despotes or the curios, was the title given to the person who gave the provision, who gave the protection to the slave and the slave's family in exchange for the service agreed upon in that contract. Slaves in scriptural days could be teachers, 
domestic servants, farmers, field workers, soldiers, artisans, even politicians like Daniel. Daniel was a slave. Nearly any kind of employment could be filled in the role of the slave. When a man paid to have a slave, it was expensive. Sometimes 2,000 times the daily wage to pay for a slave. And the master had to give the slave in the contract his full pay for the term of the service up front at the signing of the contract. Many people would even seek to become slaves, in fact, in order to be provided for or in order to pay off a debt. As long as the behavior within the contract was honorable, the slave-master system known to the Old Testament New Testament was a good experience for all parties involved. In fact, it was a major part of the social economic fabric and structure of, of the day. In the Old Testament, in fact, slaves were given rights. They had social economic uh, protections and provisions for their welfare. Three chapters to consider, and I'll let you do your homework. Exodus 21, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 15. For example, a Jew could not be contracted as a slave for more than six years at a time. Remember the year of Jubilee? What happened? All the slaves were set free. That slave could renew that contract if he wanted to, and many did. And even some slaves agreed to be slaves for life. That's when they would take the ear of that person and put it on a door and put a, an awl through the, deer, through, the, through, the, through the ear and make a ring to know that, that slave, that was, a, that was a lifelong slave. The master had to provide food and clothing and housing and payment so that the slave could support his family. A Jewish slave was allowed to rest on the Sabbath and observe Passover just like everyone else. Slaves could be married. Slaves could have children, even have other slaves to serve under them, own their own property, etc. In fact, if a slave was killed, the death penalty was required, just like anyone else. Slaves could shorten their length of service by making payments from their own wages. Slaves were often considered part of the family, treated like a son, even made the heir of the estate. For example, this is how Abraham felt about Eliezer, his slave. In Genesis 15 and 24. Think of it this way. Slaves were often the managers of all that another man possessed. They were stewards. And so the system that is known to the Old Testament New Testament wasn't inherently an evil system. It was much more like what we think of the employer-employee relationship. A contracted agreement by both parties to accomplish a certain work. Again, yes, there were periods of time in history, ancient history as well, when that slave-master relationship referred to in Scripture was perverted and corrupted and, and abused by wicked men with evil hearts. But that doesn't mean what Paul is talking about is inherently evil. We must not confuse American concept of the slave-master relationship with what we see in the Old and New Testaments. And that's why the apostles and Jesus wrote and spoke about it the way that they did. So please consider that carefully. They exhorted and commended honorable behavior in the system by both the slave and the master and exposed and condemned the abuses for what they were. 
as I said, the, the contemporary comparison would be employee-employee. Or maybe we could say contractor-client. There's legal agreements that are made. There's a contract that stipulates the nature of the work, the length of the work, the standard of the work, the payment to be received, the time that the payment is received, various other necessary agreements between two parties entering into a contract of service. And so the contemporary application of 1 Timothy 6, 1-2, through and related texts is that employee-employer relationship. And that's how we're going to apply it as we work through the text today. Now, one more necessary point of introduction before we get into the text together. That's our calling. Do you believe that work is our calling? It's your calling. It's a, it's a blessing. Consider the blessing of biblical work. God made human beings to work, didn't He? Genesis 1, 26-29, we see there the blessing of God upon humanity saying to be productive stewards and managers of all that God created in the earth. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 and 18, the calling there to work, God told Adam, tend and keep the garden. The provision of resources was given to Adam to do that. God said, here's all the food you'll need. Here's your fuel. Work hard. Enjoy it. Be blessed. God gave Adam a helper to help him in his work. God made us to work. God made work a joyful blessing. God made work before mankind fell into sin, didn't He? That was pre-fall. Work was pre-fall. I know some of you don't believe that, but it was. It's the pain, the sweat, the agony of work that came with sin, not with work inherently. And so what we need to understand is that every kind of work is filled with the blessing of God. Every kind of work. As long as it's lawful work, it is honorable, it's a blessing, it can be done to the glory of God. There's not one job that is more important than another. doesn't matter. Doctor, cook, banker, teacher, builder, electrician, plumber, officer, accountant, manager, truck driver, you name it, it is a blessing from God. It's work for His glory. Every kind of work is filled with the purposes of God for work. As long as it's lawful, God made us to work in order to reflect His likeness, to be like Him as we work. When God made the heavens and the earth, He worked and He rested. Work gives us the opportunity to magnify the glorious attributes and qualities of our God like nothing else does. Let me quote a preacher for you, John MacArthur, he said something like this, every job, every task is of intrinsic value because when it is integrated into the life of a Christian, it becomes the arena in which that Christian lives out their spiritual experience, their faith and identity. I want to read to you a lengthy quote from an article by Leland Riken called The Original Puritan Work Ethic. Listen carefully to this, and I want to take the time to read this. I, I think it will be helpful to you. Leland Riken wrote this, The Puritans spoke of two callings, a general calling and a particular calling. The general calling is the same for everyone and consists of a call to conversion and godliness. The general calling, wrote William Perkins, that's he's a Puritan, 
is the calling of Christianity which is common to all that live in the church of God. It is that whereby a man is called out of the world to be a child of God. That's the general calling. A particular calling consists of the specific tasks and occupations that God places before a person in the course of daily living. It focuses on, but is not limited to, the work that a person does for a livelihood. Several important corollaries follow from this doctrine of vocation. Since God is the one who calls people to their work, the worker becomes a steward who serves God. Thomas Manton thus commented that, quote, every creature is God's servant and hath His work to do, wherein to glorify God, some in one calling, some in another. End of quote. Secondly, the Puritan view that God calls all workers to their tasks in the world dignifies all legitimate kinds of work. Above all, the Puritan doctrine of vocation sanctifies common work. William Tyndale said that if we look externally, there is a difference betwixt the washing of dishes and the preaching of the Word of God. But as touching to please God, none at all. Baxter explained how this could be. Quote, John, uh, Richard Baxter says, God looketh not principally at the external part of the work, but much more to the heart of him that doeth it. The Puritan doctrine of vocation inherited, as we should note from Luther and his continental reformers, integrated life in the world with the spiritual life. Integrated life in the world with the spiritual life. The spiritual life was no longer limited to some sacred space, nor was it reserved for monks and nuns who had retired from the world. Instead, it is in your shops, said Richard Steele in his classic treatise, The Tradesman's Calling, where you may most confidently expect the presence and blessing of God. This view of work as vocation offers more than simply the possibility of serving God in one's daily work. It offers the possibility of serving God through or by means of that work. To work is to serve God. Baxter's exhortations was for workers to, quote, serve the Lord in serving their masters, end quote. There's a moral dimension to work as well. When the Puritans spoke of the, the rewards of work, they almost automatically paired serving God with serving humanity. Quote, the main end of our lives, wrote Perkins, is to serve God in the serving of men in the works of our callings. If daily work is as central to the spiritual life as the Puritan doctrine of vocation asserts, it is no wonder that the Puritans threw themselves with such zest into their work. We need, of course, to draw a distinction between the original Puritan work ethic and the secularized perversion that followed. The original Puritan work ethic was this, be laborious and diligent in your callings, and if you cheerfully serve God in the labor of your hands with a heavenly and obedient mind, it will be as acceptable to Him as if you had spent all the time in more spiritual exercises. That was Richard Baxter. John Calvin taught that no part of life is so insignificant that it is not related 
to the glory of God. So now, as we learn to view our work that way, like the Puritans did, like the Scriptures teach, then our work becomes one of the greatest means in the sovereign purposes of God to draw men to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? So that they may be saved. Just think about that. Your work ethic, our work ethic, will either be a distraction or an attraction for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It will either invite men to glorify God or incite men to slander Him. Consider how effective in the powerful hand of God is the Spirit-energized work of His people, of His church, to draw men and women to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's largely Paul's focus in this text. The main idea of this text, let me say it this way, let us work in a manner that excellently adorns the name of God and the Gospel. Paul gives us instruction about how to work like this in two different situations. First of all, and there's two points. Number one, when working for an unbelieving employer. And again, I told you I was going to apply this in the employer-employee relationship. This is verse 1. Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. When working for an unbelieving employer. In each one of these points, Paul addresses the attitude that must be embraced in that work. And then secondly, the motivation that can help us with that attitude. Paul's speaking to Christian slaves. Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants. He's talking to the Christian slave here. Who are in a contractual service to an unbelieving Master, that's the idea in this first verse. To be under the yoke, you see that, that phrase there, under the yoke, uh, sort of, could be sort of an idiomatic phrase symbolizing the relationship between a slave and a master. It could imply that there is some oppression and lack of fairness in that relationship, but it doesn't have to. In fact, again, Jesus used that phrase for himself and his followers too, didn't he? In Matthew eleven twenty eight. Take my yoke upon you. It is easy and light. But either way, we can, we can certainly imagine the difficulties that would arise between a Christian slave and his unbelieving master. Can't you? Consider that. What trouble could come in that day-to-day working relationship? The Christian slave might be tempted to think, condescendingly of his unbelieving master for his pagan views and behaviors. Right? I'm a child of God now. You're, you're just a pagan and you talk like it and you think like it and you act like it. You can could, could imagine a Christian slave thinking about that in that way about his master. The Christian slave might have to endure the repercussions of having to turn down a task that violated his conscience. You could imagine something like that happening. And these difficulties could tempt the Christian slave to slander his master. Or let the quality or quantity of his service reflect disdain for his master. He may be tempted to break his contract in some way. 
And so Paul exhorts the Christian slave to regard his own master as worthy of all honor. Regard his own master. That's not really what the slave would want to hear, would it be? That'd be difficult to swallow in that environment. Regard, Paul calls the slave. Think about your work. Think about it. Consider God's will. God's purposes in your work. Consider carefully the position of your master, Paul would say to this slave. Consider his position and and what that God-ordained position is worthy of or deserves. Consider carefully the relationship that you have to, to your own master. Notice how Paul draws that out. Regard your own masters. Think about your own master. God ordained that master for you at this time in this task. This is God's providence that you are working under. And therefore, His position and authority over you has been delegated to Him by God for a time for the time of the contract. And during that time, there's some things that take priority over your personal comfort, Paul would say here. Giving that master all honor worthy of his position. What does that mean? Give him all honor worthy of his position. It doesn't mean that you agree with what he believes or, or how he behaves. And certain certainly doesn't mean that you sin in order to serve him, but that you show him the respect that his position requires, Paul would say. He was calling the slave here to separate his personal feelings from his position and serve him in a way that his position and the contract requires. Serve him selflessly. That's that's what work is about, isn't it? Or it should be. Work is not about serving self. We think it is, but it's not. It's about giving of self to serve others and to glorify God. This is how you show your believing Master all honor. Respect for His position and service for His good. Well, the Christian slave might say, Paul, you don't don't know how unfair this man is. He's so unreasonable. Well, listen to what Peter said. Turn with me for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two verses thirteen through twenty-one. Be subject for the Lord's sake, Peter writes, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Here it is. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you endure and are beaten for it, you, en- you endure? If when you si- or what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Showing your unbelieving master all honor in spite of his behavior, but because of his position in God's providence, by willingly and eagerly giving respect for his position and service for his good. That is the attitude that Paul exhorts honor. Honor. Now, why should the Christian slave take that approach? And please bear with me as I continue to talk about this as if Paul is talking toward a slave, because he is. We're going to apply it in just a moment to the employee and the employer. But what, what motive does, does Paul give the Christian slave for honoring an unbelieving master? And it's, it's kind of like what Peter said, being mindful of God. Look what Paul writes. Honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The name of God and the teaching. Your unbelieving master, Paul would say, and every other unbelieving slave is going to draw a straight line between your God, your beliefs, and your work ethic. That is the way it is. It's still like that, right, of the world. The reputation of your God, the name of God, who they think your God is, Christian slave, will be directly affected by how you work. That's what Paul wants to bring through to this Christian slave. The validation of your Gospel, your teaching, your doctrine, what you say is true about God, about yourself, about life, about the way of salvation, the validation of your Gospel in their eyes will be directly affected by your work ethic. This is why all honor is required. This is the motive. No, it isn't comfortable. But it is a powerful witness to the glory of God and the truth of the Gospel. You see, the apostles understand something that's often hard for us to grasp. There's something more important than changing the system. It's seeing the hearts of men changed by the power of the Gospel. Because you can fill a good system with men, but if their hearts are unchanged, what are they going to do to that system? They'll corrupt it again. But if the hearts of men are changed by the power of the Gospel, and that man lives a different life, and inevitably the structure will change as well. The apostles are constantly willing to sacrifice social comforts to give vent or platform or arena for the Gospel to be displayed. That's what he's doing here. He's saying work even when it's uncomfortable so that the name of God through your work, the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The Gospel... Regard your master, Paul would say, with all honor by giving respect and good service because that attitude of honor may be the very instrument God uses to open His eyes and the eyes of your fellow slaves to the glory of God and the truth of the Gospel. 
This is your priority in your work, not your own material, earthly, temporal comfort. Paul says the same thing in Titus 2. Would you turn there for a moment? Titus 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul says the same thing. He tells it to Titus so that Titus can pass it on to his church. He says, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Wouldn't it be so easy for a Christian slave to become argumentative? Of course. Not argumentative. Not pilfering. Not, not trying to get money to make up for the unfair paycheck he got, right? Off the side, illegally, right? Pilfering. But showing all good faith so that in everything, what? Here's the ultimate priority for Paul in work that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see? This is constantly what Paul is getting at. And Jesus, Jesus taught the same sort of idea. Listen, he said in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And you know what? Often that light shines brightest in the most difficult scenarios in which to operate. For example, verse, verse 11-12, Jesus said right before that, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul's doing the same thing. He's taking the slaves' eyes and he's putting them away from the things of this earth and all the temporal comforts that he wants to have out of his work, and he's putting them into heaven. He's saying, Look, you're laying up treasures in heaven by your work. You're working for the master who lives forever, who is always just and will always bring justice in the end. But right now, the priority is to live in such a way that adorns the Gospel. And even when it means to endure unjust things. And so, this is the same attitude and motive that goes for us in modern, uh, as, us as modern Christian employees. With unbelieving employers. Sure, we can change jobs if, if we so desire. And that is often a fine and helpful thing to do. We have that freedom today. And that's great. What a blessing from God. Sometimes we don't, we don't mesh well in the environment that we were in. We have the option to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to create division and, and a disaster there. I'm going I'm to go look for another job. And God gives us that freedom and opportunity. And that's good. But while we're under contract, while we have to remain, shall we say, our respect and service has the same effect on our boss and our fellow workers as what Paul is talking about here. 
show all honor to the one that God has placed in authority over us in the workplace by giving respect and serving well simply in virtue of his or her position that God has ordained. Yes, they think from an unbelieving mind. Yes, they speak from a sinful heart. Yes, they act out of greedy desires. So did we before we were rescued by Christ, didn't we? Titus 3, 1 and following speaks to that so clearly. And that's exactly one of the reasons we show all honor in our work. We don't slander. We don't become lazy. We don't complain. We, put out, we don't put out poor quality work as slowly as we can. Right? We, we, we refuse to take forever to get the job done when the working environment becomes unpleasant. And that is when we have a great opportunity to turn on the light of the glory of God and the truth of the Gospel. We work to give others a sense of who God is. And a sense of the truth of the Gospel. A sense of the power of the Gospel to change the way we live, including the way we work. Our work puts God and His Gospel on display in real time, doesn't it? That's the intent. God's work must change our minds. God's Word must change our minds about the the ultimate priorities of our work. Remember this. Work is not ultimately about our comfort, our pay, our power to get earthly things, our pleasure. It's about serving the good of others and the glory of God for the sake of the Gospel. That's what work is about. Again, dear ones, listen. One of the most effective evangelistic opportunities that the church has today is in the workplace. We, can't, we, we can point men and women to the glory of God and the power of the Gospel simply by how we work in an undesirable situation. In fact, the true nature of our faith, the genuineness of our Christianity, the maturity of our Christ-likeness is seen for what it is in the workplace. So Paul says, work so that the name of God and the Gospel may not be reviled. Think about it. Your work ethic will either be a distraction or an attraction for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It will either invite men to see the glory of God or incite men to slander Him. May we work like those who are indwelt by the living God. That's what we need. The power of God within us to work like this. And like the children of God. Like members of His household. Like those who are called to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. But we'll look at the second verse next time. But let me close just by saying this. Paul calls us to a Christ-like standard, doesn't he? Who is the ultimate slave? Jesus. Jesus is. Philippians 2. For our sake, He took on not only the nature of man, but the nature of the slave and bore our sin in His body on the cross and obeyed even unto the point of death. Unjustly so. But for our salvation. And so we look at what we're called to. We we see our sin for what it is, don't we? We see how we've been thinking wrongly about work. Selfishly. We go to work selfishly. We go to work mindlessly without a sense of God's blessing and calling and purposes through our work. And so the first thing I would encourage you is to look to Christ 
Because in Christ, you are forgiven and righteous. But remember what we've talked about during the Passion Week. We're not forgiven and made righteous simply to go on living that way. We have been made dead to sin and alive to God. We're not slaves to sin anymore. We're slaves to righteousness. And that, and that will change the way we work. Won't it? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2 talks about how God is at work within us to will and to work for His good pleasure. Look to Christ as your life at work. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And ultimately, and we'll talk more about this next week, ultimately, you are working for the Master who bought you with the blood of Christ. And He will reward you in Christ based on the righteousness of Christ as you work in Him. You ultimately are not working for an unjust, crooked, unbelieving Master. You are working for Jesus. That's, that's what Paul calls us to. And we'll look at those texts next week. But that's freeing, isn't it? And while we're working for Him, we're called to endure much, yes, but to do so for the sake of the Gospel and the glory of God, just like the Apostle Paul said. Let's stand together and pray this morning. Before we pray, but as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, I would like you to think in your heart and ask yourself, are you a slave of Christ? Have you been purchased by the blood of Christ? That's the most important thing you need to think about this morning. Maybe you're listening and you don't know that your sin is forgiven. You don't know that, that you are a child of God. You don't know that, that you belong to Jesus. And none of us do naturally as we're born to the world. We all are born to the world with sinful hearts who love sin. We love sin. And we have dishonored God. And because of our sin, we deserve His eternal judgment. But yet God is merciful. And He sent His Son to live a perfect life that we could never live and to die on the cross in our place, taking the punishment we deserve for our sin. And if we trust in Him, then He promises that we will be His children, His slaves, His sons and daughters. If we will turn from our sin, if we will take Him as our Master, if we will turn away from our own self-righteousness, our own effort to be good enough for God, if we will turn to Christ and trust His gift of righteousness and atonement, God promise us promises us that we will be given the gift of eternal life. We'll be adopted. We'll belong to Him. If you have not turned to Christ this morning away from sin and away from your own effort to be good enough, I want to encourage you today to come to Christ to confess your sin, your need for Him and to call upon Him.
to be your master, your savior, your Lord, and believe the promises of God that, that all who come to Christ, He will not cast out, but that He will receive them as His children and raise them up to eternal life on the last day. That's God's word to you. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this text that touches the very essence of our daily lives. Thank you that you are a good master and we are delighted to be bought by you. So fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to see for whom we are working and why we work. And that all the work that we do that's lawful is, it can be done for your glory and for the proclamation of the gospel. Please teach us this, Father. And let your church grow. Let people be saved by the tool of our daily work in your hands. We thank you that you have made us for these things. And you will empower us by your Spirit for these things. We pray it in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.